Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 120. On today's show, we talk about a lost Egyptian city, a new discovery at Tikal, and Harriet Tubman's father's home. Let's dig a little deeper. All right, welcome to the show, everybody. Good morning. Morning. Yeah, so we are recording from a hotel room on the 16th floor of a hotel just south of Central Park, New York City. Yes. So inevitably, given our experience here in the last three days, and we have to have this little window open, even though it's, well, it's 55 degrees out in the morning. That's not too bad. It was 39 yesterday morning. But the pipe droppers, we, we've got to account <laughs> yeah. for the pipe droppers. That's all people do in this city. Every day of the week is drop pipes yeah. that echo through the city. The, the clanking of pipes is the constant background noise around here. Yeah. It's probably all the scaffolding. Yeah, probably. It yeah, yeah. Building it, removing it. But, but it's just like the sound that you hear all the time. Yeah. I can physically see no construction and yet we will hear a pipe during the course of this show. Although it is a Saturday right now. So I don't think they care. Maybe Sunday. I have noticed it's quieter today than it was other days. Yeah. So that might, it might help. But all right. anyway, we're in a city. So this what it is it's yeah. fun to be here and we're having a good time yeah and i i don't know if we're gonna get any material to talk about this but it's, it's interesting being in a historical city and whether or not you think of new york as historical because when you look at it it's a very modern city at the same time it is but then when you get down in the streets it's a very historical city there's a lot of things here like when we passed trinity church i couldn't believe i mean i've heard of trinity church before i think it's down near the the financial district but mm-hmm. i didn't know there was a cemetery still there like who the heck yeah. is buried in the middle of new york city i know in trinity church it's really cool it's yeah. really really neat and we were in little italy for dinner last night and the buildings you're just surrounded by buildings that are clearly so old and in constant use which is the only reason why they're not falling down obviously because yeah. like a hundred year old building is not going to last unless people are constantly living in it so it's just it's uh it's really neat to be in such an old old city yeah it is indeed so i keep going back to that trinity church though it's probably just like regular people varied there too like well, they didn't sure. know it was going to be a big famous city like regular people 200 years ago or whatever right yeah so, yeah, yeah it was a thing yeah. yeah so anyway all right so we've got three articles we're going to talk about today from egypt to mexico to the united states yeah lots yep. of cool stuff in the news these last couple of weeks so i'm excited to talk about these articles yeah exactly and the first one has got somewhat of a typical headline here yeah <laughs> the lost golden city of Luxor 
discovered by archaeologists in Egypt. And then they show a picture of, you know, like a fully excavated section of this city that they say was discovered. Now, it makes it seem like you got to remember the publishing cycles for archaeology, right? They find something. They don't just run out to the media and say, look what we found. Yeah. I mean, they might if it's something super crazy, uh, something somebody might find out and there might be some media attention early on. And more than likely in Egypt, there was media attention early on when this was found. However, and that it was found back in September of 2020. Mm-hmm. However, just looking at this, you know, they waited until they, they probably had something published and then the media jumped on the publications. Yeah. And now we're seeing what's here. And I do appreciate, we'll get to this, but near the end of the article, they mentioned that there's a lot more to do. Yeah. Right? So uh, this isn't like something where they didn't publish for five years and now it's a new discovery. Right, right. So anyway, let's talk about it. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's a... Uh, 3,400 year old city. So, and it was originally built by Amenhotep. Amenhotep. It was originally built by Amenhotep III. He ruled Thebes for a long time. And then when his son took over, his son is Akhenaten. And Akhenaten, you might recall, he was married to Nefertiti and they, they were like rebel pharaohs, right? So they did their own thing. They created a whole new type of artwork, that bust of Nefertiti that's so, like, I can just visualize it in my head. I think everybody's seen it with that long neck and everything. They just, they just went a totally different direction with the whole government and everything. And in doing so, they moved the city from where his father had built it to a city of his own that he built, like, Mm -hmm. further away. And so what happened was that the area in Thebes, I think it was like North Thebes, was just essentially abandoned one day and and left to the desert and to time. And the city was kind of perfectly preserved. And they did like in their, you know, way that they love to use headlines in the media, mm-hmm. they called it the Pompeii of Egypt. And I'm like, right. well, I don't think it was like <laughs> quite like there's not bodies in the street. So and it wasn't like buried in an afternoon either. No, probably like took many probably took at least a season. A- at least like I know yeah. sand moves quickly and like fills in fast, but like I'm sure it took a bunch of years. And, and Akhenaten, he ruled for a solid like 20 years before he died. So yeah. like, yeah, anyway, but I did find it interesting that it was preserved basically because of like a political divergence mm-hmm. and a religious divergence of the next pharaoh. It's interesting. Now here's the thing I thought was difficult to pull out of the article the way that it was written. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of info there, but I just, I, I don't feel like this was very clear and, and it's very important to note. So Akhenaten ruled for 17 years and mm-hmm. he didn't leave to the the new city they were created, which was called Akhenaten. And you know, all the, yeah, all naming this, cities after yourself like you do. Well, and, <laughs> and kind of because Akhenaten, the god, the sun god Aten, which will come up later. Oh yeah, Akhenaten means devoted to Aten, so he right. went totally religious. Yeah, you know, crazy guy, and said, "We're going with this one god, and I'm changing yeah. my name because his name was Amenhotep IV." Oh, yeah, and okay. Then he switched it, <laughs> so it was like a religious, like yeah, like devotion, almost culty exactly. kind of thing that caused him to change everything and move like that. Yeah, and then Akhenaten was the name of the city devoted to this sun god. Okay, yeah. So it's now called Amarna. It's a place. Okay, in, in All right. Egypt. But cool. Anyway, the thing that I didn't seem very clear at first, unless you really pulled it out, was. Uh, 
it wasn't just like this city was abandoned and then never gone to again until archaeologists saw it today. Right. Akhenaten's son is Tutankhamun. Yeah. And Tutankhamun moved back to the city. Well, kind of. Didn't he move to like a slightly different area, though, and like created a different... Maybe, but he was in the city for a little while, and then some other people were there, and it was actually used all the way up until the 3rd through 7th centuries AD. That was a few thousand years later. It wasn't Uh until then that it was actually fully abandoned. That it was like truly abandoned. It's possible that the parts that the that the excavation is uncovering again we don't have a lot of information because this is an ongoing research project yeah but it's possible that those maybe those parts were abandoned by Akhenaten and and haven't been seen for 3,000 years that's what I'm wondering is if it's just a a portion of the city was completely and totally abandoned when Akhenaten moved it's it's confusing Uh, yeah I feel like the person who wrote this article also didn't know a lot about Egyptology, <laughs> did some Wikipedia research to try to place everything in time and just didn't write it very well. That's entirely yeah. possible. So yeah, it's just, it's just incredibly confusing. So anyway, I think the one, one of the things they're trying to find here, of course, and it is why the city was abandoned originally. Cause it mm-hmm. was about 150 years. I think they said that Egyptian pharaohs had ruled from that spot. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Akhenaten ruled from that spot for about three years. And there seems to be some evidence that he ruled alongside his father, who I I guess he didn't he didn't abdicate, but he ruled alongside his son. It looks like in the literature, probably in like a transfer of power kind of a situation. Usually usually that transfer of power is on your deathbed. You know, that's how it works. So anyway, looks like he ruled for a little while. And then once his father died, it was like three years later, they moved to the new city and then abandoned the old city. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they did find to place this in time, which I thought was pretty cool, inscriptions on clay caps of wine vessels to help date the city. And I put here as a note, or at least the wine, because, (laughs) you know, people hang on to wine for decades now. I don't know if they did back then. It's true. But uh, 1386 to 1353... BC. Mm-hmm. And I want to know what the date actually said on there, because as we'll find in, in one of our later articles, other cultures obviously had different dating systems yeah. and they didn't know that they were going backwards in time in the BC dates, right? They were going forwards in time in their own dates. Mm-hmm. So how does their Well, there's, Egyptian, an Egypt, there's an Egyptian calendar, right? I'm sure that they can use that to place right, it within our... But I don't think there's like an a single Egyptian calendar. Oh, well, maybe like, not. I'm wondering how they dated it so specifically to this 30 year period. Yeah. And it's just, I don't know. I don't know. So, because they did say they found dates, not other cultural references. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we know the the line of pharaohs in Egypt. We know, you know, what that is. And if they'd found, a, you know, the symbols of a pharaoh on there, like Amenhotep III, they mm-hmm. would have seen, they would have been able to place it in that time period. But no, they said they found dates. Mm-hmm. Hieroglyphic inscriptions helped. Oh, they does say hieroglyphic inscriptions help date the city. It doesn't say dates. It's interesting. Uh, yeah. So, I so think maybe I just it's like dates. you. Yeah. Maybe because like maybe it's hieroglyphics yeah. puts it into a bit of context, and then they right. had some sort of organic material that they could right. date to get that the specific dates. But, yeah. Yeah. It is kind of cool too. The um, things that they've been finding so far, and again, it's not even fully excavated, but this is a real living city, even mm-hmm. though it was like a royal royal industrial complex. It was also, you know, there's a lot of people to help keep that sort of yeah. thing going. And they found homes of uh, workers and where people lived, you know, bakery, kitchen, metal and glass production, which I didn't know that the Egyptians were working with glass that early. That's pretty mm. interesting. Yeah, that I is knew cool. glass was old, but very advanced uh, buildings for administration and uh, even a cemetery. Mm-hmm. So 
that's pretty cool. They said there's also one of the other reasons they know that the city was used in in different time periods. What there's there's so far there's four distinct settlement layers that they've uncovered mm-hmm. that take it from that time period again all the way through the seventh century A.D., which was only you know thirteen fourteen hundred years ago. Yeah. So. Anyway, they still don't know why it was abandoned because apparently when Tutankhamun took back over, the government, presumably led by Tutankhamun, but presumably really led by somebody else because Tutankhamun was like nine or yeah, something. Yeah, he's, like he's like the boy king, right? Yeah. And like he only ruled... He was barely he was a teenager, in a, I think, He was he, barely an adult when he died, right? Yeah, he was pretty young. Yeah. He was pretty young. But the point is, somebody else was probably advising him on a bunch of things. Yeah. And I don't know who's really pulling the strings there, but uh, he moved the moved the kingdom and all traces of Akhenaten were removed. And yeah. it wasn't his his whole entire reign wasn't even rediscovered until I think it was the eighteen hundreds or something like that. When they found his tomb. They found mean? something, yeah. yeah. And uh and then they rediscovered the fact that he existed and then started mm-hmm. finding other stuff about him. So now people are really curious as to well, obviously learning more about him. Mm-hmm. But also trying to see if there's any traces in this lost city, even though he only lived there for a few years, can they find out anything that would tell them why Why? he moved it? And I think the answer is probably pretty clear. It's religious. Yeah. Anytime you go from lots of gods to one God, you're going to piss a bunch of people off. Yeah. And he he was crazy enough about it to change his name. And I think some of the evidence I would try to look for would be evidence of the other gods, because they always have like these gods either in inscriptions or as, you know, sculptures or paintings or something on the walls Mm -hmm. and all around. I would want to find evidence that, yes, this looks like an older god, but it's clearly been disfigured or destroyed. Hmm. And see if there's actual still evidence of that. Yeah. Yeah. Because that seems, that seems like the the reason he left and and you know you see people who want to leave a situation and not be reminded of the things that are there probably just wanted a, a fresh start in a new city devoted to the sun god not an old city that constantly reminded him of the gods that he was not uh, a part of anymore and these egyptian pharaohs they they really consolidated their power in a a very like narcissistic i'm closely related to the gods kind of a way and they were they were gods yeah yeah yeah. so like if he really wanted to like switch this entire civilization that he's in charge of he had to make a hard break and a hard separation and be like this is done now we're going this new direction in this new way and i think physically moving it was probably his only option for really truly solidifying that change with the people that he's you know ruling over so that's probably why he had to do it and you know that left behind a city for us to Mm -hmm. to discover centuries millennial later so that's pretty cool actually yeah, and I look at him through my notes here. Um, I wrote down that it was actually the discoverer of his city, Akhenaten, mm-hmm. uh, now Amarna, that brought his reign to light. Yeah. Yeah, so it makes me wonder, you know, sure, Tutankhamun moved the royal house back to, um, actually to Memphis. Yeah, to um, Memphis. To Thebes for a little bit, but then also Memphis. And then uh, he... And that's not Memphis, Tennessee, by the way. Um, <laughs> Thanks although, for that clarification. Although Memphis, Tennessee has a lot of Egyptian craziness going on. Oh, does it? Yeah, there's okay. like some uh, hearkening back to its name. Well, I mean, it was it's yeah. named after it, yeah. 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 So yeah. anyway, 
the discovery of that city is what um, is what brought us right into light. But I don't know anything about that city. We didn't research that for this article. Like, was it? No. Did it continue? You know, because all these people that are workers and stuff, are they like, all right, great. I guess the crazy pharaoh is making a decision today. Let's pack <laughs> everything up and leave. I mean, kind you of. Know? But like, if it's happening every twenty years, it's kind of like okay. Whatever, like that's not. Yeah, but I, I don't even understand this small, small-ish city of the Royal Industrial Complex that was yeah. inside Luxor. Mm-hmm. It, like the rest of the city was basically still there, and they yeah. moved the Royal House and all this to a new city. But there were presumably still people nearby. I'm shocked that it was actually abandoned to the sands, unless he 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 decreed and left guards there that said no one's going to live here. You can't use this area. We're yeah. going to block this place off. Maybe. Then, then it wasn't looted, maybe, and people were yeah. just not allowed to come in, because why wouldn't squatters come over and say, look at this I house? I bet you're totally right. And from what I was reading, it was definitely like on the north end of the city, so maybe it was already a bit geographically isolated as far yeah. as that goes. And yeah, like maybe he didn't say nobody will use this space ever again. Maybe it was more like, well, we're going to keep this palace complex for like our vacation home so nobody can use it. It'll still be there. Right. And But we're going to move over here on a more permanent basis. And because of that, you know, people yeah. stayed out of it. But then like what actually happened is that he never used it again and it just sort right. of became what it is and what it was what they were able to find so yeah yeah well that's sound, my theory okay sounds good <laughs> well it didn't sound like he had a pyramid so that means we don't care about him let's go talk about somebody who does have a pyramid <laughs> the mayans so all right let's do it back in a second chris webster here for the archaeology podcast network we strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world one way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once we do that through the use of zencaster that's z-e-n-c-a-s-t-r zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest just send them a link to click on and that's it zencaster does the rest they even do automatic transcriptions check out the link in the show notes for 30 off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code TAS. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 120. And we are going to cross the ocean and a couple continents and go all the way (laughs) (laughs) over to Guatemala for this next story. So I was super excited to find this story because we had just gone to Chichen Itza and we did a whole episode about our experience there and going and seeing the Maya Pyramid there. So this story when it popped up I was like oh that's really cool so of course we have our 
attention grabbing headline. Archaeologists discover a mysterious monument hidden in plain sight. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? All it means is that there was a hill in the Mayan city of Tikal, which is a big complex of pyramids and buildings and stuff. And it was in use for a long time by by the Mayan people in Guatemala, right? And using LIDAR, they were able to identify what looked like a man-made structure under a hill, essentially. So that's yeah, how they were able to find this. Let's talk about LIDAR for a second. Yeah. It stands for light detection and ranging, just like radi- radar stands for, I think it's actually radio detection and ranging mm-hmm. or something like that. I can't remember exactly, but essentially radar uses like radio waves and LIDAR uses actual light. Yeah. And uh, lasers, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But LIDAR is usually flown from a plane, and now they can do it from drones. They've got some smaller LIDAR units that they can fly from drones, which is pretty cool, because you can get drones into places where you couldn't get planes. Yeah. You can bring it with you. And this is probably helpful in this case, because we're talking thick jungle and uh, difficult to to see sort of place. So anyway. And, And LIDAR... Is it's people are famous for saying lidar like looks through vegetation mm-hmm. and can see the underlying hillside and structure that we wouldn't normally be able to see. Which that's not exactly true. It's such a high frequency of light. It really just as the as the aircraft is flying, you might think that it's thick vegetation that you can't see the ground, but there's little holes and little things like yeah. that. And it really just it does look around and in the vegetation, and it bounces back in such a fast nature because the instrument is measuring the time that it sends from the aircraft and then comes back and that gives it the distance Mm -hmm. and then it's going so fast that it's going through those microscopic little holes in the in the vegetation that'll get you to the landscape yeah enough that it can paint a picture yeah so in that sense it does kind of look through vegetation if it was truly looking through vegetation it wouldn't be so lumpy when you look at the lidar images um because yeah. it's picking up some of the vegetation, too. And also, this was under a, a layer of soil as well, so it's like... Right. But the soil usually takes on the characteristics, the shape of, of the, the soil. The shape of it, yeah. yeah of yeah. the massive stone structure beneath it. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's what we're seeing. Yeah, yeah. So that's LiDAR, and just a quick note, too, it always... I don't know why it surprises me still, but all these new pyramids they always find using LIDAR, it's like <laughs> the pyramids, uh, if I were a researcher down there, I'd be like, are you kidding me? There's been a like pyramid another over there. one? <laughs> like the whole time we've been here, it's just been sitting there. Well, I think if you're a researcher down there, you just kind of know that like there's probably a pyramid on every rise <laughs> in the land because like that's yeah. just where you're at. But yeah, the Mayan city of Tikal in Guatemala was a, a central hub of the people for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so geographically, I kind of like want to put this in perspective because I'm not super familiar with the, you know, Central American geography. But basically, yeah. Tikal is it's almost directly east of Mexico City and Teotihuacan, which is was at Mexico City. So if you can get that in your head, it's a little bit further north. Like they're not exactly on the same mm-hmm. latitude, but. But we're talking like 800 miles, you know, away from each other and very similar in in latitude. So yeah. there you go. There's your your placement. And then we went to, to Chichen Itza, which, you know, the Yucatan like sort of curves up of mm-hmm. Mexico. So that was almost like directly north of Tikal. So and that that was in use later on. We're talking a much earlier time period right now, not not the Chichen Itza time period that we talked about in our 
last episode. So, so there's your placement of these cities and places geographically and in time a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what I loved about this is that they started excavating this pyramid like you do because, you know, they're just trying to find more about the city and the people and learn about it. And they realized as they're excavating that this pyramid looks much more like the structures that you see at Teotihuacan, which is 800 miles west of there, right? Mm-hmm. So they're like, what's going on here? And they keep excavating. And by the time they get done, well, not fully done, but get to see a bigger picture of it, they realize that it looks like a half-sized replica of the Citadel. And the Citadel is like the biggest pyramid in Teotihuacan. So they're kind that you know that's just an interesting mix of architecture that you would find from a completely different civilization right in the heart of of the Mayan city mm-hmm. and they don't really know if people from Teotihuacan built it or or what's going on there but it seems likely that it just represents like how the two cities sort of traded with each other and you know information is going back and forth and people and and stuff like that. So that's sort of where they're at is that probably some people came from Teotihuacan to live in Tikal and brought <laughs> their preferences with them, I guess you could say. All right. Archaeologists, <laughs> right? <laughs> what? They they want such clear-cut answers to things. We all want to just be like, well, this is here, which must mean that this <laughs> and blah, 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 blah. Listen, there's more than one way to build a pyramid, Right. Now, if your method of building a pyramid was completely steeped in, you know, religious tradition or something like that, that totally makes sense. Like you're going to build a pyramid in a way that, uh, you know, makes sense for you. So, but if the people of Teotihuacan are up visiting and they're like, hey, let's have a little embassy here and, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, and meet up, that could be one thing as well. But also, you know, we're talking about pyramids and (laughs) how different was it? You know how I mean, different I mean, enough that they could tell. Yeah, but isn't it just like the people, the the engineers at T Call were like, "Hey, that looks cool. Let's try one of these." I mean, you it know? could have been. You're totally right. It definitely couldn't have been. But there's more to this story, which we'll I'll I'll continue here in a minute. But the pyramid, the citadel in Teotihuacan is like a it's like a true step pyramid, and it's not not like the ones at Chichen Itza and some of the other Mayan ones, which were like more vertical you know and like smaller Mm -hmm. steps that go up this one is like giant platforms and each step in the pyramid is way bigger than the ones you see on the other mayan pyramids so it is really like a fundamental structural difference now that's not to say they weren't copying what they saw at teotihuacan but what we can definitely say for sure though is that there is an exchange of information and people going on yeah. and a friendly exchange, right? Yeah. Because they were seeing what was happening there and incorporating it into their city or people from Teotihuacan was coming there and bringing it with them. Whatever way it happened, it was like a friendly relationship. Probably. One thing that would lend the uh, to the idea of it being more of a, a relationship, and this was more like an, I keep saying like an embassy, mm-hmm. but embassies in cities are often decorated in the style of the place where the, you know, the country is from, right? So it's a little more distinct. Yeah. So I, I know they probably didn't have the concept of an embassy, but they could have had a similar thing if, if like the people from Tikal are, are trading or something like mm-hmm. that over there and they want a place to go, whatever. I don't know. But, um, if they were incorporating these building ideas into Teotihuacan, that's a totally different thing because then, 
you're not going to see like one massively distinct structure. You might, but mm-hmm. you're also going to see those elements morphing and changing from the other, from the stuff that they're doing on the everyday basis. You're yeah. going to see their own designs starting to change and maybe incorporate elements of this you know, to them, new design. Yeah. And that's how that works. The whole thing is going to change. And, yeah. and presumably you might even see changes in T-Call in the same way, you know? That is an interesting idea because I didn't get the impression that that that's what they're seeing. Like they're not seeing sort of the micro changes that happen when two cultures influence each other. Yeah. And maybe there, maybe it's there and it just wasn't talked about in this article or yeah. it's just a harder thing to like find evidence for. I don't know, but... Who knows? Yeah, and just another note on the pyramids here, like, as I'm saying, there could be other structures that incorporate the elements of both building styles or multiple building styles. Maybe we just haven't found them yet. Yeah. Because they just found this pyramid. That's true. And obviously the jungle likes to hide pyramids from people. Right. How many other pyramids? Who who knows what else it's hiding? (laughs) Yeah. How many other pyramids are being hidden? And also, uh, I think back to Chichen Itza, right? There's two other pyramids inside of the main temple at Chichen Itza. Mm -hmm. So is it possible that instead of adding and building new pyramids, in some cases, maybe another pyramid or elements were put onto an existing pyramid that changed its shape and character, and we can't really tell today Mm -hmm. without really, quote, digging into it, no pun intended, but Mm -hmm. we can't really tell today because it's been heavily modified. I mean, you've seen... I mean... Every single person listening to this podcast has seen some show on HGTV about renovating a house, right? Mm -hmm. How many times do they renovate it to where it doesn't even look like the same house? Is that, you know, possible that they could have done that back then where they added some elements to it and changed it? With stones, though, like that's a little bit harder. If you've got a step pyramid and then you take those steps and you fill those in with other stones and do things, you can drastically change the shape of that thing. I mean, that's definitely possible. I wonder if we do see that kind of changing of shapes I in the archaeological know. record. I mean, the stone is all millions of years old, so how would we even know that they added something later? You yeah, know? I don't know. I feel like you maybe through this, the building techniques or whatever, maybe like they could tell that. Carbon techniques and stuff. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Who knows? But let's go on with the story because it does get even more interesting from here. And I know you're very skeptical of this Teotihuacan-style pyramid being built by actual people from that city, but... One thing they do know is that that it was built about a century before 378 CE. And that's because basically all hell broke loose in that year, January 16th, 378. And I know that's a very specific date, but they have <laughs> actual Mayan inscriptions talking about this date. And that is when Teotihuacan marched in and conquered Tikal. And nobody knows why. Like, nobody knows why what was clearly a friendly relationship, they just found this pyramid that shows that a century earlier, they were building Teotihuacan-style structures in Tikal. And in addition to that, just prior to 378, there is a a collection of Maya or Tikal-style buildings in Teotihuacan that were destroyed just prior to them marching in and taking over Tikal, just prior to that year 378. They found smashed murals, smashed Mayan murals in Teotihuacan, and also they found human remains that, in this article it says, human remains that have been shattered. Now, I don't know if that meant that the bones were shattered after 
like later on or when the shattering yeah. of the bodies happened, if it was while they were still alive, that they were I mean, shattered. I don't know. I don't know. But violently killed lots of people. They, they did. Ritually or after a soccer game or, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know what the context there is. And this article very, very like briefly glossed over that part. So, but what is interesting to me is that some kind of switch flipped in the relationship between these two like city states. And all of a sudden they marched. Oh, you do? What's the answer? answer. Okay. What's the answer? So it was all (laughs) a classic ploy of the conqueror. Oh my God. Because Teotihuacanians (laughs) Uh probably always never, never liked Tikal, right? They probably just never liked him. So they went over there, talked him into letting him build this pyramid there. For like a century. Yeah. A century ago. Yeah. They hated him the whole time. This classic ploy was like a century in the making. Sometimes things take a long time. All right. right? So I mean, it took them probably a decade (laughs) just to make a pyramid. It's a long game. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So they build this pyramid, which was really basically a Teotihuacanian Trojan horse. And (laughs) since they can't like store people in there for a hundred years. Also, they can't move it. Well, no, but they built it in the city. So they would have people come over as ambassadors, like 20 people come over to visit Tikal and they like leave one in the pyramid and then they just do this for a (laughs) while. Just like keep leaving them in there until there's like a whole population of them inside the pyramid. And then they conquer them. Okay. Yeah. They just flood out of the pyramid and take over. (laughs) And, and, but that's, you know, obviously unrealistic. What's more likely the case is they built, they took a hundred years after they built that pyramid to build a tunnel back to Teotihuacan so I they could mean, get their armies through undetected. 800 miles. It might take a century to it build would, a tunnel that's that it long. It would take a century, <laughs> but not really though. You just have to get down to the nearest cenote and then find the way to map your way over there uh-huh. using the underground waterways mm-hmm. and then pop up in that pyramid. So I think if, that if is, they want my archaeological <laughs> advice, they would look for a hidden entrance to a cenote under this pyramid. That is that is a theory. That's what I'm going to say. It is a theory. It is now the plot of <laughs> Indiana Jones 6. Oh, my gosh. All right. All right. Well, really quick. The reason that we know so specifically the dates of when this stuff happened, yeah. I think it's so interesting, is that according to Maya inscriptions Teotihuacan's king sent a general known as born of fire <laughs> so born of fire comes to topple to calls king jaguar paul jaguar paul <laughs> wow i, I want to go by no. by tiger chris no. <laughs> <laughs> jaguar paul jaguar paw you're editing all of that out jaguar paw <laughs> jaguar paw so <laughs> Born of Fire versus Jaguar Paw. And this is all in inscriptions and uh, Mayan hieroglyphs or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how they know. And they have specific dates that are based on the Mayan calendar. So, there you go. Sounds good. Well, that's about enough for that. uh, (laughs) A lot of wild speculation and not a lot. I mean, some archaeology. We started out with archaeology. We veered into wild speculation. Sometimes wild speculation is just your thesis and (laughs) you have to go and disprove it or prove it. Hey, there you go. go. It doesn't say it's wrong until it's proven wrong. Right. Yeah. That sure. Innocent until proven guilty. That's the the track you're going to take. Also, it was clearly aliens. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Can we please leave aliens out of this? (laughs) Always. Well, let's let's be done with that. And then we're going to move off to the United States. Jaguar Paul out. 
may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. All right, this is Jaguar Paul. Welcome back to the oh, Archaeology man. Show. <laughs> Honestly, like I really thought you were going to just like edit all that out and we could move on from it, but you just keep bringing that joke back like it's not dying. So So if we got any artists out there that could do me up a t-shirt for Jaguar Paul. Oh, God. We'll give you uh, a percentage of the profits and we'll put it on our T Public store. All right. So we're going to move now to the United States and we're going to move to a pretty cool excavation that's happening right now. And this is based on a CRM project or cultural resource management. Yeah. And th- that is the type of work that, that, that I do that Rachel does. Mm-hmm. And that most people in most archeologists in the United States are actually CRM archeologists. There's fewer academic archeologists. Well, mm-hmm. there might not be fewer academic archeologists, but there's definitely fewer digs, so to speak, because yeah. they'll work on something for decades. Yeah. Whereas we'll work on something for three weeks and move on to the next thing. Yeah. So this was a, this was a CRM project. We'll get a little bit into that later but Mm -hmm. let's have the synopsis here yeah well we're talking about the cabin that was owned by harriet tubman's father and they think that they have found the location of it basically harriet tubman was born araminta ross in the early 1820s that's another cool name i know i love that and her father was ben ross so i wanted to make sure and get her original name in there because it's like her father is Ben Ross and anyway. Araminta that's got to be obviously from African origin but I'm not sure where her uh, yeah. heritage came from I don't know such a cool name though yeah very cool yeah. so her father Ben Ross was a slave obviously and he was freed after after his owner's death and he also was given the 10 acres of land that this cabin is built on and that was in like the 1840s mm-hmm. so and I'm not sure what Harriet Tubman's story was with being freed or whatever but she definitely like worked on that property with her father after he it was given to him and he sort of started working that land and supporting his family through the working of that land they think that he harvested trees on the property and sold them to shipbuilders in Baltimore they this cabin became the livelihood for Harriet Tubman and her family, like yeah, this, the this the land, property. the cabin, the property, all of that. Yeah. 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 Okay. And uh, they think that Harriet Tubman probably learned to navigate the forest and the waterways and the area from her father and from working this land 
and she used that knowledge to help slaves escape on the Underground Railroad later on in her life. So yeah. that's sort of the significance of it. The project itself, it was managed by MDOT, Maryland DOT. And I'm not sure if it was specifically CRM. Like, it seems like they acquired this property specifically because they thought that maybe it was related to Harriet Tubman somehow. And then they got funding through grants and things to do the testing on it to find to see if they could find this location. Right. Well, it may not have been mandated by the laws that usually mandate that type of stuff. But yeah. a CRM firm named Search which is mm. an acronym, and I, I know that they probably found that word and then found the letters to make the word search, but it's brilliant <laughs> either way. Uh, search is a, is a big CRM yeah, from the East yeah, Coast. Yeah, they do yeah. a lot of stuff. and they Oh, did they do the work? They're the ones that oh, do the okay. work. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, the article here says that they dug about a thousand shovel tests, which makes sense because you and I have done like a phase one survey yeah. in in areas, not in Maryland specifically, but on Mm -hmm. the East coast in areas like that. And like, yeah, like you can definitely dig a thousand negative shovel tests sometimes like that'll, that'll definitely happen. For those of you who are lucky enough to not know what a shovel test is, (laughs) it's basically count yourself lucky and move (laughs) to the West coast. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) But basically it's a, uh, and especially for the non-archaeologists out there, yeah, it's essentially and the, the size and depth of this shovel test varies depending on what state and area you're working in. But essentially you're, you're walking usually, uh, what's called a transect, but you line up a bunch of archaeologists. They've all got a shovel and a screen, and then they're lined up a certain distance apart, usually 15 to 30 meters, mm-hmm. depending on what you're doing. And then you move the same distance forward and you dig a hole. Some places, uh, the standard is typically a 30 centimeter or about a foot and a half mm-hmm. or so uh, diameter hole. And you dig it usually down, to be honest, as deep as your shovel will go or until you hit rock or a water table or something that yeah. will stop you. Something that you know is like a sterile yeah. level. If, if you can make that judgment based if on the soil. Can, and sterile means no artifacts, yeah. right? So yeah. sometimes if you're digging in levels... Like if you're stopping every 10 centimeters to document what you found, uh, some people will say dig until you have two sterile levels. So if you have two 10 centimeter layers that had nothing mm-hmm. in it, they'll call it good. Right? Yeah. But again, it's all regional. It depends on the archaeology in the area. It depends on the geology. It depends on a lot of different things. Some places are 50 by 50 centimeter shovel tests, uh, which like are really big. And, or like square ones, and too. That's what I mean, square, yeah. 50 by 50 Oh, yeah, square. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And like, that's like a tiny little test unit. Well, it's a quarter test unit because yeah. the test unit is usually a meter square. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I've dug 50 by in uh, Vermont, in Florida, and... I'll tell you what, they are they are rough. Um, and they probably didn't do that here because they said they dug over a thousand shovel tests, which yeah. typically those are going to be the 30 centimeter round yeah. holes. And usually if you find something in a shovel test, either right then or later on, you'll, you'll, you'll GPS it. But you'll do what's called a cruciform test after that, where if you have 30 meter spacing on your shovel tests, that means that one hole plotted on the map is 30 meters left and right, forward and back to the other regular holes around it. And presumably all those holes are negative, right? Mm -hmm. So if you find one positive, you're going to dig until you find two negative holes. So you Mm -hmm. go out 15 meters in one direction, in all directions. And if that hole's negative, then you're done in Mm -hmm. that direction. But if that hole's positive, then you dig a little farther out. Yeah. You go half the distance between that hole and the next hole. And you you keep doing that until you find um, basically two negatives in a row. Yeah, basically. And you do it in all directions. Yeah. 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 You end up with this amorphous shape that is presumably where your the bulk of your site is and mm-hmm. then you come back later on if 
the project determines it and you do what's called like a phase two or testing phase or mm-hmm. they can just depending on what's found go straight to block excavation where you're taking everything up yeah so yeah and in this project also they i guess they had some kind of provisions for metal detecting so they they dug all these shovel tests a thousand of them i don't know if they were all necessarily negative but they weren't giving them the answers that they were they were hoping to find or that they were looking for so they got out the metal detectors and that's when they found an 1808 50 cent coin Mm. and they also found some ceramics not from the metal detecting but just like in the process of doing it so that told them that they were kind of in the right direction to have something like that 1808 happens to be the year that harriet tubman's parents got married and it would have been you know coins that were in use in the time by by her family Mm -hmm. so you know that helps to set that stage now that also feels a little flimsy to me to be like, yes, we got an 1808 coin. Therefore, <laughs> we found Harriet Tubman's father's cabin. <laughs> right. I think that there are some holes in the story and that we're definitely missing some of the other things that are telling them context wise that they have found the correct building and property because they there's remains of a structure there and other things that are telling them that they have found the right place. Yeah, there's got to be more that we know about her. I mean, we don't know a ton about her, but there's got to be more that we know in just little bits and pieces. There are some Harriet Tubman scholars out there yeah. that know those tiny, minute details that come up when you're just telling a story. Something she may have offhand mentioned or something about her her childhood or where she grew up or you know, mm-hmm. some, her parents, her father, something like that. So taking all those pieces and putting them together leads these researchers to believe that they have indeed found her father's house that they found the right place so yeah so yeah i think that's really neat because she's such a important figure and yeah there's a lot of people that study her and the underground railroad and the work that she did but i think there's also still a lot of holes in her life especially in her her childhood and her young life so some of this stuff can help sort of fill in those gaps and help us just learn more about who she who she was when she was younger and and how that helped her develop into the the really amazing strong person that she became yeah so i think that's it's really neat and i would love to keep an eyeball on the story and see how much more they find and how they're able to like really truly know that they have found the the cabin of ben ross yeah indeed all right well with that we're going to end this podcast i will say it always happens periodically, but we have some people sign up for membership to the APN at arcpodnet.com slash members. And some people get confused and think that they need to they need to pay us to listen to podcasts. No. I, I yeah. have to stress that our podcasts are always and will always be free. Yeah. Uh, now, I'm saying that even knowing that Apple rolled out podcast subscriptions that you can pay for oh, really? just last week as we're recording this episode in the end of April. So... Who knows? There might be some bonus content or something, but we have our own membership site that yeah. we put bonus content on for members only and things like that. I don't feel the need to give Apple 30% of that for that privilege. So we, we may or may not go down that road, but we'll see. What I'm saying is you can always find, you're listening to this podcast, but we have more podcasts out there. And, and to get the terminology right, an episode is what we're doing right here. A show is the entire show. Mm-hmm. You know, So we have lots of shows on the APN. That doesn't mean we have lots of episodes here, although we're recording number 120. But other shows on the APN, we have at least like 12 or 13 other active shows and then at least 10 or 15 more in our back catalog that are yeah. no longer active. So lots of stuff that you can go and find and it's all free. Go listen to it. Mm-hmm. If you decide that you want 
want to give us a little something to help us keep this going and all the volunteers and because it's not free to do this, then we have the membership that allows you to listen to ad-free shows and allows you to basically communicate with other members of the ATM. But more importantly, it just is a is a donation that you're basically giving to us um, on either a monthly or annual basis. Yeah. That just allows us to, you know, keep it going. Yeah. So, so when you're scrolling around on the APN site looking for shows and stuff, yes, of course, there's pop-ups for you to sign up for our mailing list so that... Yeah. Not that we use it that often, but when we do, you'll get emails from us about shows and cool things like that. And also to sign up as a member. Um, but none of that is required. So don't feel like you have to you have to sign up for anything to get the content. No, no, no. Just go to wherever you download podcasts from and you can get all of them for free. Just type the name in of the ones you're interested in and they're right there. Or you can listen directly on the website too. But That's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks everybody. And uh, we'll be back next time. Thanks for listening. See you later. Jaguar pull out. Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. You can also find us on the Lyceum app, a podcast app just for educational podcasts. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.